In this podcast episode, we want to introduce you to our BCEN friend, Carol Covey. Come along as Michael Dexter and Holly Briggs talk with Carol about her journey in emergency nursing, which has led her to her current role. She is the medical services manager leading a healthcare project to meet the needs of a very vulnerable patient population, unaccompanied minors from the U.S. borders. This episode is called, Next Thing You Know, ED Nursing to Hospital Contracts and Design. And welcome to the BCN and Friends podcast, where we hold interesting conversations about learning with a range of thought leaders, BCN certification holders, and industry professionals. But most importantly, to create value and insight for you, our professional nurses across the emergency spectrum. We hope you find our discussions interesting, informative, sometimes funny, sometimes serious, and always valuable. I'm Holly Briggs, a professional development specialist at BCEN, and one of your hosts for today. I'm joined by my co-host, Michael Dexter, Director of Professional Development at BCEN. Hi, Michael. Hello, Holly. Good to be with you again. Good to have you. In this episode of BCEN and Friends, we have Carol Covey. Carol is an emergency nurse who has a passion for humanitarian aid, currently focused on the southern U.S. border. She is creating an impact on the big picture of healthcare and not wasting any of her experiences thus far to create something new. Michael, can you please introduce us to our BCN friend, Carol? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Carol Covey has worked in various roles within healthcare over the last 15 years, uh, ranging from the ED to ICU. She's also worked in trauma and flight nursing, pre-hospital, as well as administration and lots in between. She has a passion for education, leadership, and serving those in vulnerable populations. During 2020, Carol focused her efforts on emergency response and humanitarian aid services from Florida to California. She's currently the medical services manager with AECOM, working on a large-scale project involving pediatric and adolescent care. She holds multiple certifications, including the CEN and CFRN. And Carol's also a student working on a dual master's degree program in nursing and business administration. Carol, welcome to the BCN and Friends podcast. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Hi, thank y'all so much. I'm very excited to be here and be with y'all. Well, I kind of went quickly through your uh, bio on purpose because there's a lot there. And I was hoping you could maybe delve into it a little bit more for us on um, kind of your career and how you got into medicine to begin with. And uh, maybe tell us more about your nursing journey. All right. So interesting story. I look back on when I first graduated from high school, I wanted to be a biology teacher, high school biology teacher. No idea where that desire came from, but that was my goal. While I was in college, my mom went back to school as an adult student and went to nursing school. I watched her graduate and saw her start working in the emergency department. I would go up on, she was on night shifts and bring her coffee or food And I saw my first helicopter. I saw my first flight crew walk to the ER doors in their flight suits with their gear. And I was zoned in. I said, that's what I want to do. So I quit my education program and transitioned into nursing. I started working at the hospital. I worked there as a tech during the last years of my nursing program and was able to transition easily from tech role to a nursing role in a department that I already knew where all the things were. I feel like that's half the battle when you're starting a new role or a new facility is learning where everything is. At the time, it was a level two trauma center, and we were going through processes of accreditation to transition to a level one trauma center. Within that transition, there was always opportunities for you know, leadership, charge nurse within our trauma program, getting our burn program going working with new graduate nurses. I loved being a preceptor for like paramedic students that came through, nursing students. 
I was definitely a night shifter. I think that I'm still a night shifter at heart. Uh, there's something about that teamwork environment again, where everybody really has to pull together. You have limited resources on night. You don't have all the extra people. Um, so learned a lot more just in various roles. If there was an opportunity for an education or a training, I was one of the first ones to sign up. I said, I want to try, let me do it. I want to go. And then in that time, I knew that nursing, flight nursing was definitely my goal. So I continued to work on obtaining my paramedic license. Um, always have had a love for pre-hospital care. So that was really kind of down the path of just being passionate about the pre-hospital care and how I could be a better provider. Um, got my CEN. And I was really, really close to hitting my three years as an ER nurse. I got to do a ride along with one of the local air medical providers, which was fantastic. Really gave me another taste of, hey, this is what I really want to do. Pretty much as soon as I hit my three-year mark of nursing, I applied all over the country. But I don't care what state it's in. I'm going to apply, see what happens. I really want to be a flight nurse. So I actually got hired. Uh, in California. So I up and moved to California, was a flight nurse in very rural uh, Northern California with both rotor wing and fixed wing. Um, so lots of transfers down to Sacramento, to San Francisco Bay Area. Um, but I remember one key moment after I started flying. The past six years have been to get to this point of flying, and I'm here but now what do I do? I just hit kind of a wall of, I, I reached my goal. I don't know what my next goal is. I hadn't really planned past being a flight nurse, but I still love taking care of patients. That has never changed and has always stuck with me. Definitely flying. I learned how to communicate a little bit differently to patients because you're in, you know, close quarters, you're confined, your time, you could be with them for a long time. And just being able to have a conversation with them so they feel comfortable. So I worked PRN in the ER and then really came to a, just a point of flying where I was mentally ready to move on to something else. Um, being at a very busy base, we had, I had done over 300 flights in about two and a half years. Um, I flew for a total of three years. And I think I, looking back on it, I really reached a point of, being burnt out. And I didn't know how to handle it. This was really before talking about mental health was a little bit more accepted because I felt if I spoke up that I was going to, you know, people are going to say, I'm not that good of a nurse. And why are you burnt out? I was really nervous about all those things. So I just decided to really step away from flying for my mental health. So I went to a small hospital a critical access facility. So at this time I'd been, I worked at level one hospitals, I worked at level two hospitals. And this critical access facility was pretty much the only medical hospital ER in, you know, over a hundred mile radius that really served another vulnerable population. Um, but working in that role in an administrative role, I really learned a different perspective of caring for that vulnerable population. So I'd been through the bedside piece of it and how to help them at the bedside. But in the administrative role, it was what tools do I have from my facility, from my community to help them, help their family 
be able to help take care of them so they didn't have to come back. My perspective has always been, you know, what can I do for my patients so that they don't have to come back? So they don't need to come back. And so just learned a different perspective there. And that's when COVID started. So COVID, I didn't leave the hospital because of COVID. It was definitely a transition where an opportunity presented itself. And I said, sure, why not? I'll try it. I had worked on some wildland fires in California over my you know, four years that I was living there. And one of the people that I worked with did contract work all across the United States. And so I called and said, we need to set up a field hospital in Florida. I need a nurse. Are you interested? Do you want to go? Absolutely. I'd love to. Those were two weeks. Started in Florida, ended up in Houston, setting up a facility in Houston, um, and never went back to the hospital, which was not my plan, just kind of how it all, all happened. So we built this facility in Houston. It was a huge learning experience because I was expected to lead all these people. We were going to have 150, 200 medical providers there. We were going to be open 24-7. It was a low acuity uh, field hospital, but I was responsible for inventory, for documentation, all the daily processes and job descriptions. It was a lot for my first out-of-hospital kind of contract job, but learned a lot. I learned in that role how to delegate. I wasn't a very good delegator, but I learned having a team and leading a team means you have to involve your team and you trust them to do things when you ask them to do it and not always feel like, you know, I just need to do it. Otherwise it's not going to get done right. You know, COVID obviously continued. I ended up uh, back in Florida. I was there for about eight months doing contracts, not contract travel nursing, but more of the fields contracting. So I did, uh, we had COVID testing sites, COVID vaccination sites. We had hospital staffing that were augmenting the facilities. So a lot of different things, um, non-bedside project management type um, in Florida. Learned a lot about incident command system and the structure. Learned about emergency management. And you know each state has an emergency management department. Florida is obviously a very large emergency management division because of all the storms they come through. Their state, they have a lot of resources. And then transition from there to more of office-based. Also learning more about contracts and contracting and government contracts, what um, an RFP is, a request for proposal, how to write an RFP, being creative when you're given a scenario that says, hey, we need medical care in Montana, we need a clinic, you know, this is the RFP, how would you do it? So kind of stepping outside of the box and being creative from the pre-project perspective. It was interesting always when, if we were awarded the projects, actually getting out and doing it and learning that maybe my creative idea wasn't the best idea, but lots of lessons learned during this phase of being creative on paper, outside the box, knowing that you don't have traditional resources, how you can adapt to your setting. There's lots of layers in contracting and learning what chain of command was. It's always been valuable to know hey, if something happens with this, this is who you go to first, and this is your next person, the third person, still kind of going back to that incident command structure. Lessons learned during those phases. And went to California in 21, 
And that was my first real experience with unaccompanied minors, with refugee children. It was an emergency intake site that was set up in Southern California to help decompress all of the children that were coming across the border in those early months of 2021. And in order to decompress all of the facilities that were along the border that had these children, they had to open up these care facilities to care for thousands of children at a time. This specific facility was designed for 2,000 children. Really, in that role, had kind of that clinical operations piece that I was responsible for. Being able to lead a group of 300, 350 you know, medical personnel to care for these children was incredibly rewarding in the fact of we didn't have to worry about, oh, they don't have insurance. They can only get these vaccines. It was really opening the doors of a medical facility and caring for whatever it was that came through. Might not have the resources, but no one's ever turned away. It's very rewarding that you would have these children from such various backgrounds come to our facility and let us help take care of them. So yeah, that was my first experience with the, the children. Fast forward to now, I am super blessed to help lead another effort to care for unaccompanied children, a little bit bigger, um, a little bit different role. So I am responsible for all of the entire medical and behavioral health services for this facility. Definitely still learning a lot. We're given very clear guidelines from the government and from Office of Refugee Resettlement about the care we have to provide the children. And so once again, pulling back from my RFP days and learning how to write those and be creative is they've given us these guidelines of these are the things that you have to do. And now I'm able to take those and be creative and actually able to get all of these put into practice. You know, our policies, our procedures, our staffing staffing grids and matrix and hours and expectations and job titles, all those different pieces, just being creative and knowing, you know, this is more of a temporary type facility. You're still not, you know, a hospital system. You're not tied to a hospital system, but making sure that clinical governance is at the right level, utilizing our evidence-based practices. It's a lot, but... That's where I'm at now. Well, Carol, as a key leader for the design and building of this facility still in its planning phase, what have you found to be the greatest challenge? That is an excellent question. Lots of challenges, but I feel like one of the greatest ones has been learning how to communicate from an administrative level to non-medical professionals. Engineers and architects usually think very linear, whereas as nurses, we kind of think holistically as a big picture. So really learning to adapt what I know and understand from the medical fields to explain it to people that don't think my way or think like a a medical professional or understand medical terminology enough that they feel like they know what's going on. They are included. They understand the big picture. So that's definitely been probably one of my biggest learning curves over the past couple months. So I have a question about how these individuals get to a refugee center like the one you're talking about setting up. So I've been along the border multiple times. I don't see any advertisements for them. Maybe just speak to how these individuals come into your care. It's very interesting. So I've, I've talked a little bit about Office of Refugee Resettlement, or ORR is the acronym that I'll probably use. Um, the other one is Health and Human Services and Department of Homeland Security, DHS. So 
ORR, Office of Refugee Resettlements, falls under Health and Human Services. The other piece is Department of Homeland Security. So when these children come across the border, they go through, obviously, a process. They come through, they're identified as being a minor, so someone that's 17 and below. And then the other piece is that if they're identified as being unaccompanied, it means that they don't have an adult with them, someone that's 18 or over, that can prove a relationship, that appears is a safe person to be with because we're also worried about trafficking concerns. DHS goes through their checklist. They determine they are 17 and below. They are unaccompanied. They don't have an adult with them, someone that's a safe person for them to be with. And that's when they are uh, detained at the border. So these border facilities are not designed for children. They're not designed for long-term stays. What happens is once DHS has them, they have 48 hours to notify ORR that they have these children. What ORR will then do is they review the screening and medical screening that DHS does to determine where this child can go. There's lots of different types of facilities within ORR. There's almost 300 of them in about 27 states, and they vary from very small group home to more of a higher security type facility to larger group homes, and then into these bigger type facilities that I'm working on called an influx care facility. So ORR looks at all the criteria that DHS has collected they decide that, hey, they need to go to this specific facility that can care for that type of child. They usually divide the ages from what we call tender age, so from zero to 12. And then the, the next age category, which is what I've been focused on for this period, is that 13 to 17-year-olds. So they decide, hey, where, which facility they're going to, they use their criteria to put them in the safest, most appropriate place. And then there's a transport that happens. Once they arrive at the facility, uh, the care starts from whoever's running that facility. So for our example, they arrive at our facility, and then at that point, we are responsible for the care and comfort of that child, the safety of that child during their entire stay. Um, the goal within ORR is to keep the children for less than 30 days. And the whole goal of these facilities is to reunify them as safely and as quickly as we can with a sponsor. So the sponsor could be a parent that's already stateside, could be a family member, family friend, but there's an entire process to vetting all of these sponsors to make sure that it's a safe place for them to go. So there's a lot of criteria that they go through in this reunification process before they're actually able to leave the facility. Thank you for explaining that in detail so that way we can really understand how, how do they get to you? I feel like there's always politics and lots of different opinions about the border, American borders, refugees. And honestly, just putting all that aside, you know, these unaccompanied minors, they still need help. So what would you say is your personal motivation to take on this type of work? It's something I'm really passionate about coming across without a family member, without an adult alone, they don't have anything of comfort. They come to these facilities and there's lots of children they don't know. There's children from all across the world. You know, the top three countries that they come from are Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. And a lot of the times they're coming from those countries to escape something. You know, there's trafficking, there's cartels, there's mafia, there's gangs, all these different things that are pointed to these children 
threat, their safety is threatened. So they're coming across for something better or trying to take care of themselves or trying to help take care of their family. There's so many different reasons why, but me as a person, I can do something that I love doing, taking care of other people to just make a small impact in their life. So if I can show them when they come across that in the United States, we can care about other people and we're not motivated for mafia reasons, for gang reasons, for safety reasons, all those things that they're trying to escape. But, you know, as a human, as a person, you can care for somebody. I hope that that makes them, you know, more successful on their journey here in the United States, the journey to something better, something safer, um, something different. Well, Carol, talking with you about your career and you're through EMT and paramedic and became certified, you learned about RFPs, which you never thought you'd have to do. And you learned about uh, emergency management. And so, you know, you mentioned at one point, just trying to figure out what your next goal was and trying to figure out where you wanted to go. And, you know, with all of these things, you've had to constantly learn. And so just from your perspective, we like to ask a lot of people this question, but from your perspective, how vital is it being a lifelong learner? And what would you recommend to other nurses that are coming into this profession um, in terms of constantly seeking those learning opportunities? I think the lifelong learning for me was an example for my mom. She went back to school as an adult. Um, My father went back to school as an adult as well, back to college. And seeing the impact that never stopping always learning, always having the mentality of what can I learn today? What's something different that, you know, I can do to make myself better. As a young ER nurse, I knew that in order to be the best that I could, that I needed to really push myself to study, to learn, to read books, to find the best, you know, podcast to listen to. And in all of that, as a young ER nurse is where you come up with you know, the CEN, if you're looking at looking for resources or how you can better yourself, everybody's like, you need to go get your CEN. Have you start studying, start studying, take a review course. It was something that was really pushed and encouraged um, from a healthy perspective. And that, that just really drove me to, Hey, I can do this. I did this. This is making me such a better nurse because of all these things. And just, it really snowballed into, I wanted to go take advanced burn life support. Uh, started to, I took ENPC, I took TNCC, even as a flight nurse, there was all kinds of different certifications that I could get. And it wasn't about the alphabet soup after my name. It was really about what can I do to be better? And I think with that mentality, it becomes that lifelong learner. Anybody who's a new ER nurse, I would just encourage them. I know that Nursing school is hard. I know that it's kind of a rite of passage and we've all been through it. It's a challenge. But really, once you get into your specialty, into the ER, you get your feet under you, is don't stop. You know, orientation, new hire, preceptors, all the, all the things are really challenging those first couple of months. But once you get your feet under you, don't stop. Keep pushing yourself. Keep asking questions. Find that community of nurses that you work with, where you can study together, you can talk through scenarios and situations. Hey, I did this. Do you think I could do this differently? What would you have done? And just surrounding yourself with a community could be your coworkers. It doesn't have to be outside of your you know, facility where you're working at. Find that community to really push yourself along together. That makes it so much more enjoyable. It also makes studying for CE and better if you have a group of people. <laughs> that is true. That is definitely true. <laughs> 
All right. So Carol, I want to, um, you mentioned your mom going back to school, being a big impact on your life. You've also mentioned your dad. But if you look at your career itself, whether it's a parent, a coworker, or a patient, who has left the impression on Carol Covey's life? That's such a hard question because I feel like the past 15 years, there's been so many different people who have played key pivotal roles without knowing it whether it's, you know, just someone that I've looked up to or a coworker that really pushed me along. If I had to pick one person, it would definitely be my mom. She went back to school. She's finished her nurse practitioner. She has her PhD. And she's probably been one of the people that as an adult is, hey, you know, what's next? What are you doing? I'll call her and say, hey, I'm trying to figure out how to, to talk through this, how to write through this. You know, just earlier today, I called her and I said, hey, I'm working on these policies and SOPs and protocols. And this is how I'm having organized. Does this make sense? And so we had, you know, conversation of, oh, you should do it this way instead of this way. This might make more sense. But just throughout my entire career, she's been kind of that person. She was my inspiration to becoming a nurse to start with. I have no desire to be a nurse practitioner. She can have that all all on her own, but I really enjoy just having that one person throughout my career. You know, definitely there's been people all along the different places I've worked where I've really sought someone to, to mentor me, to teach me, whether it's in a formal or informal relationship, someone, they have this job, they do this. I want to do that one day. How do I get there? You know, what can they teach me? You know, what can I learn from them? Those are all along the way. But if I just had to pick one person, my mom and then my dad, I can't leave him out. (laughs) He's the person that I would call when I had a bad shift, when something happened, when I just needed to vent. He's a firefighter, so he understands kind of the pre-hospital world, but he would definitely be the person when I would call on the the bad shifts over the last 15 years. Well, thank you for sharing all of that, Carol. We appreciate one, your parents have been a a true inspiration to you, obviously a great impact, but just along the way that you've linked up with some people who've gotten you the things that you needed during that season to move on to where you are today. So it does take a village to get us to where we are. So I am going to kind of change the direction of our podcast real quick, because I have some rapid fire questions that I'd like to ask you. And they're really just so we can get to know you a little bit better. If you were not in your current role, what would you be doing? I would love to say that I would be like a rancher or something, (laughs) farmer, rancher. I don't know. It's random, but I grew up on a farm. So that's something I like, I might do that. I have no idea. Okay. I mean, like, are we like raising cattle or are we like farming? Like, are we, we got crops? Like what, what are we talking here? Um, um, maybe a combination of both. I grew up with horses. I love riding horses, maybe have like a barn, teach lessons, maybe grow some crops on the side, have some hay to feed the horses, small garden to feed the family. Okay. Just a mix of things. <laughs> right. So if you weren't keeping busy with what you're doing now, you'd find something to keep yourself equally as busy. Awesome. That is um, correct. Yep. <laughs> those farmers, from what I hear, very long hours, very early. Yes. Um, so, all right. Well, we have some favorites categories. So what is your favorite book, all time favorite, or it can just be something that you're reading that you'd like to recommend to us. Um, I really like Brene Brown. 
some, she's, I've learned a lot from her and from the leadership perspective, just in her approach of how she teaches some of her different um, things. The biggest one being vulnerability and how as a leader, you need to be vulnerable. I just read Atomic Habits, which is really interesting to hear him talk through these little bitty changes that he made all through his life that made him successful. So I've just, I thought, Hey, all these little bitty things really add up into something bigger. Awesome. Thank you for those recommendations. I'm going to write that down. Favorite movie. The Italian job. <laughs> it's because of the cars. They're mini coopers. When I first saw it, I fell in love with mini coopers and I eventually had a mini cooper for a couple years, but still my favorite movie. <laughs> It's got Mark Wahlberg. It's got a Mini Cooper. They're like, there's some fast scenes where things are happening. And I also, I, I appreciate the kind of like the, how are they going to pull it off in that movie? Like, how yes. are they going to do it? So yes, great. Very classic movie. If you haven't seen it, you should check out the Italian job. Um, all right. Favorite musical artist. Jordan Davis is at the top of the list. Um, he is actually from Louisiana, so kind of works out well for me being down here now, but Jordan Davis is at the top of the list. Awesome. All right. You've got some really great recommendations for these listeners here, myself. Uh, this is, this is usually a very divisive question as you know, this is a big deal. And in my world at the very least is what is your favorite comfort food or a meal that you really enjoy? Chips and salsa. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay. Like I have, I have a friend. I won't name drop him and he will probably listen to this podcast, but I have a friend and he, he believes that the further that you get from like the Southern border, the worse the salsa gets. <laughs> How do you feel about that? What is your take on this? Uh, I would say that every state has a little bit different take on what salsa should be like, but the Southern states are probably the best. <laughs> <laughs> oh, See, you've, you, you're playing right into his theory. Um, <laughs> but yes, I would say that it's just, it, it's amazing to me. You can order, you can order chips and salsa in one region of the country and you get something you're like, oh, okay. And then you go to another, like you go further North, you go to a different region of the country and you order the same thing. And it's like, this doesn't look the same, nor does it taste mm -hmm. the same. And, you know, I, I feel like people in the South, we have, um, a lot of opinions about food. So yes. there's that. There's that. Um, yes. I'm not going to call us experts, but perhaps we are just saying, all right. Do you have any other hobbies or what's a self-care go-to for you? I love running. Um, I have always had the bucket list goal of running a marathon. I have signed up for a marathon for the end of this year. So hopefully if I say it out loud, y'all can hold me accountable to it. But currently running is definitely kind of my, my Zen just to clear my brain. I get some good ideas when I'm running. And then I also have this really weird kind of hobby calming thing of cleaning and organizing. I like to be organized and I like things clean. <laughs> Carol, do you own a label maker? <laughs> maybe, you know? maybe not. <gasps> She refuses to answer. That's a yes. Yes, that's what it is. Oh my. Okay. Well, I'm going to be honest. Both of your hobbies, both running and organizing are very productive. So congrats to you <laughs> for keeping two very productive hobbies. If our audience would like to follow you online, what social media platforms are you on? I have LinkedIn and Facebook that I'm most active on. Awesome. We will list those in the uh, blog bio for this episode. 
So thank you for sharing that with us, Carol. Carol, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for sharing your knowledge and your expertise about really, I don't even, would you say emergency nursing? In a way it is, but really just in the way that you've impacted patients through leadership and through um, being able to find ways to come up with um, solutions for these complex problems of unaccompanied minors, um, but also all the work that you're doing um, across healthcare. I just, it's really fascinating. It's been really great talking with you. So thank you for sharing your time and, and uh, your expertise with us. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate the opportunity. Well, I want to take this time to thank Carol for joining us for this episode of BCN and Friends. Thank you, Carol, for sharing your knowledge, your time, your passion with us. And we're looking forward to spending some face-to-face time with Carol in Charlotte, North Carolina for BCN Learn Live on November 13th through the 15th of 2023. Check out the registration information at bcn.org backslash learn live to see the lineup of speakers and topics. Get registered. Come meet us in Charlotte. And to all of our listeners, we hope you will stay tuned as we continue with BCN and Friends and bring you new and meaningful content and perspectives. If you have a suggestion for an episode, please email us at bcn at bcn.org. I'm Holly Briggs here with Michael Dexter. And on behalf of the entire BCN team, we thank and celebrate you for all that you're doing as professional nurses across the emergency spectrum. Until next time, we are out.